We welcome you to the second edition of the Monthly Labor Report, in which we talk about the latest news on labor actions, imminent and ongoing strikes and contract negotiations taking place nationally and in some cases even globally. And we'll also probe more deeply into some of the structural economic issues underlying the recent upsurge in militant labor action and organizing that has sent tremors through the, I guess you could say, previously immovable pillars of late-stage neoliberalism. (laughs) Well, as usual, we'll do this with the help of Michael Zweig, an economist, labor historian, Professor Emeritus at State University of New York at Stony Brook, and author of many articles and a few books, including What's Class Got to Do With It? American Society in the 21st Century and The Working Class Majority, America's Best Kept Secret, and a forthcoming book, Class, Race, and Gender, Challenging the Injuries and Divisions of Capitalism. And I believe that book is just about out now. I know it was slated for October. So, Michael, congratulations and welcome to the second edition of the Monthly Labor Report. Thank you very much, Richard. Good to be with you. And that book is out uh, on October 24th from PM Press. Okay. Well, we'll certainly be talking about that in some depth coming up. In any case, there's so much on the plate today. I mean, this... Newsday was madness. We had the ousting of Kevin McCarthy as the Speaker of the House. We had the the trial of Donald Trump dominating the news. And the strike, the United Auto Workers strike, seemed to have slipped off the main page temporarily. So why don't you give us some update on what's been going on, some of the latest developments as you know them. And we'll get into some detail about that and compare notes with the recently settled, without a strike, UPS negotiations that came to some pretty positive results for the the workers that did not have to actually walk a picket line in that case. Yeah, well, it's been a very remarkable period for the last uh, year or so in labor relations and in the life of unions in this country. Uh, The UAW is, of course, on strike and has been for several weeks now, uh, and it's a new type of strike for the UAW. Uh, In olden days, they would pick one of the main big three auto producers, and they would strike that company, and they would strike the whole company. Uh, This time, they aren't doing that. They're striking all three companies together, Ford, General Motors and Stellantis, which is the old Chrysler, uh, and they're doing it selectively. They're picking only a few uh, plants around the country and gradually expanding the number of plants that are involved in order to increase the pressure in the negotiations, but they're not shutting down the entire industry. They're uh, husbanding their own resources in their strike fund. They have a big strike fund, but they are trying to focus where that goes just on the workers who are going out in the few plants that they're calling out. And it's uh, designed to show the power of the membership. It's designed to exercise an influence across the industry as a whole, the unionized industry, and it is new in the uh, uh, toolkit of the UAW and its historic in its historical uh, approach to collective bargaining. Well, 
How's it going so far? What are the demands of the UAW in this unusual labor action? And what do we know about the negotiations, the process, the progress, and some perhaps degree of success that uh, Sean Fain is having in negotiating them? Well, right now, there is no success. They're still on strike, and they are increasing the pressure. Uh, Every week or so, they'll add a couple of plants uh, around the country, uh, parts plants and others, to give some real pressure on the the companies. Uh, And I should say also that this militance on the part of the UAW is not the only place in the labor movement that's, uh, you know, showing this kind of an upsurge. We see it in the writers. We see it in the SAG-AFTRA, the actor's strike. We see it in UPS, uh, which didn't strike, as you say, but they really mobilized 370,000 Teamsters to go on strike in a credible uh, campaign. And, uh, you know, the teachers in Los Angeles and all over the country, there's this stuff bubbling around. So it's a very, very interesting uh, moment uh, that is giving some strength and courage to workers around the country to follow suit. Uh, in the UAW, uh, they are negotiating with these three companies. Some advance they report from Ford, a little bit from Stellantis here and there. They're uh, trying to advance their agenda across all the companies, and we'll still have to wait and see uh, how that all unfolds. But uh, we don't have the particulars of what is being agreed to and not agreed to yet because nothing is agreed until everything is agreed. So you may have a tentative agreement on some aspect of conditions or wages or whatever, but you don't really have that done until everything is done altogether. Well, what are some of the issues that are being negotiated? I mean, I think we know, obviously, pay will be one of them in reference to the fact that Sean Fain is is asking for a, I think it was a 40% pay raise over a four-year period. And also there was a question of the the different tiers of workers and how that impacts not only the part-time and newly hired workers, but it also puts pressure on the full-time workers in terms of having sort of their solidarity split. There's that issue. And then there's also the question of this whole question of electric cars and the sort of Molotov cocktail that's been being thrown by the right into this whole conversation about how, oh, Biden is, uh, his his environmental policies are destroying the, right. the futures of workers. So talk to us about some of that and uh, where it's going. Well, the uh, terms and conditions part, the, the wages and the two-tier system where new workers are brought on at half the wage rate of the existing labor force, that was all brought in in 2008, 2009, 2010, when the auto industry was going broke in the economic crisis uh, that was consequent of the financial collapse in 2008. And in order to save the companies, in the negotiations with the uh, Obama administration for public support and bailout of the companies, the unions gave up uh, a lot. They gave up in wages. They gave up in working conditions. They gave up on pensions. They gave up across the board of what a contract covers. And that was part of the deal to save the companies. Well, the companies have been saved, and they're making enormous amounts of profit, and 
the executives, the top uh, executives of these auto companies, are experiencing enormous increases in their own pay and their own compensation. So the workers are saying, look, it's record profits. It's time for a record con- uh, contract. Uh, we gave up in order for you, uh, the company, to survive and to get re- recovered and get on your feet. You've recovered. You're on your feet. You're making record profits. Well, what about us? We want to be included in that. And we want our uh, labor and our contribution to making cars and making the company profit. We want that recognized in undoing those concessions that we gave back in 2008 and nine, because that crisis is over. The industry is surviving and is very, very profitable. And now it's time for the workers to benefit from that. Now, I will say on the electric vehicle issue, the problem is that electric vehicles require much less labor. There are many fewer labor hours involved in putting a battery into a car than there is involved in putting a, an engine, a, a, a gasoline engine, or even a hybrid engine, and a drivetrain and all the rest of that. It's a very, very different labor component. And the union is saying, wait a second, if we put this technology into place, what about our jobs? And what about the, uh, the battery factories? Those are new jobs, that's true, but they're not union jobs unless we make them union jobs. And so they are making demands of the company, but also of the Biden administration to say, look, you're giving these subsidies to battery companies so that they can make these batteries more cheaply and make them in America. That's fine. But condition of those subsidies is that they should employ union labor or they should be neutral in a labor uh, negotiation and uh, contract uh, uh, union recognition, union organizing campaign. They should be neutral in that and let us work with the workers to bring them into the union without management interference. Well, the Biden administration at first had that in the legislation and then they took it out. So the uh, UAW is saying, wait a second, that's a mistake. We want something to say about that uh, technology. Now here, on that point, I think what's go- what is going on with the uh, uh, SAG-AFTRA and uh, the writers uh, is a very, very important breakthrough that the writers were able to make. In labor law in this country, there are certain things that companies are required to bargain if they have a union. They have to bargain about wages. They have to bargain about grievance procedures. They have to bargain about medical benefits. But they don't have to bargain about technology. The company has the right, uh, without going to the workers, to implement any technology uh, that they think is going to make them profit without regard to what the workers are thinking about or need. Well, as the old saying goes, if uh, you're not at the table, you're certainly on the menu. And so these workers in the the writers' union were saying, wait a minute, you are implementing uh, AI, uh, artificial intelligence technology, and we want to say on how that's done. Now, that's not a required uh, subject for negotiation. The management does not have to negotiate that, but the writers forced them to negotiate it. And so in the writer's contract, that was settled and is now going to the membership for uh, ratification vote, there were 
uh, elements of that negotiated contract that govern the implementation of that technology. In particular, that the writers have the copyright. The, the machine doesn't have a copyright. <laughs> the machine doesn't own the product. The writers have the final say on what's the script. It's not the machine. The, the machine can generate a first draft, but the writers sitting in a writer's room have the obligation and the responsibility, and it will be paid to write the script, whatever the machine spits out. Uh, well, and then there's issues about residuals and how the financial structure of the company will uh, benefit the uh, workforce. Well, that's a major breakthrough. The fact that the writers were able to force a negotiation and get favorable terms for the technology that's being implemented is something that the UAW is also demanding and trying to get, and we'll see how that goes. Are there companies that are not covered right now by the UAW or part of Ford, GM, and Stellantis that are part of this picture in terms of electric cars and the battery development and production? How would the, this particular negotiation affect that big picture? If the UAW can get major gains in these negotiations and show that the union really makes a difference, that the union can really deliver, and that you can't get these gains and benefits in working conditions and technology control and all that. You can't get those things unless you have a union. That makes it easier to go to workers in non-union plants and organize them into the union, get them to vote for a union. So those are elements of the puzzle that the UAW is very, very conscious of because they've had a hard time and have really not been successful in organizing non-union plants, particularly in the South, in Tennessee and in Mississippi and in South Carolina, where the uh, UAW has tried to organize mostly uh, Japanese and German companies. Uh, so they're hoping that uh, this success, if they get it, in these negotiations will put them in a better position to present themselves as a, a viable, uh, you know, entity to vote for if you're, you know, working in the Volkswagen plant in Chattanooga, Tennessee. And you're tuned to WPKN in Bridgeport, 89.5 FM, and streaming online at WPKN.org. We're speaking with Michael Swig. What about how much electric car manufacturing could take place at the big three and the, what about the battery production plants? Are there any that are in the north, which might be easier to organize? And in addition to that, I'll pile on and say, I heard maybe from Pete Buttigieg that there was a grant put aside for plants to retool to produce electric vehicles, union plants to retool to produce electric vehicles. Do you know anything about that? And what about these northern facilities that might, in fact, be online to produce electric vehicles and batteries? Well, the electric vehicle production uh, for cars and for batteries is fairly new in this country. And so the distribution of battery factories, for example, in particular, is growing now. And I actually don't know what the distribution, the geographic distribution of existing battery plants uh, is. I do know that what the labor movement 
wants from the Biden administration is the kind of thing that you were just describing that Buttigieg was talking about, that the subsidies that are available are only available for union plants or for companies that will allow unions to organize without interference and without management opposition. So that step in the uh, allocation of subsidies has not yet been taken by the Biden administration, and it is a serious issue of contention remaining between the UAW and the Biden administration, despite the fact that Biden showed up, you know, in Warren, Michigan uh, the other day to uh, be on the picket line and support the workers on strike there. This might be a good moment to play a little clip from the rally where Biden and uh, Sean Fain met with workers and uh, let's listen to Sean Fain and maybe you can uh, reflect on the language here. Hopefully this uh, technology will work. Let's try it. We find ourselves here again with the arsenal of democracy. It's a different kind of arsenal of democracy and it's a different kind of war we're fighting. Today, the enemy isn't some foreign country miles away it's right here in our own in our own area. It's corporate greed. And the weapon we produce to fight that enemy is the liberators, the true liberators. It's the working class people, all of you working working your butts off on those lines to deliver great product for our companies. That's right. That's how we're going to defeat these people. That's how we're going to defeat corporate greed is by standing together. You know, this is a historic moment, the first time in our country's history that a sitting USA president has came out and stood on the picket line. Our president chose to stand up with workers in our fight for economic and social justice. moment in time. You know, just as today, you know, it's about the auto workers who are part of the fabric of the working class of this country. We're the people that make the world run. It's not the billionaire class, not the elite few. It's the working class of the billions of people who've been left behind. That's what this battle's about, changing that. You know, what's going to move this It's not some executive that owns our future. It's us. It's working class people from all walks of life. You know, it's what we decide to do together that's going to change it. It's going to shape the future of this earth and for future generations. And that's the economic reality that corporate executives don't want us to recognize. All right, so I think it's uh, interesting you know, the language he uses there. And why don't you reflect on that and maybe talk a little bit about why it's so important to make uh, a clear delineation of working class versus the ever-present ubiquitous reference to the middle class, which in most commentaries seems to be the lowest that you can possibly go in the United States of America, this exceptional nation. What are your thoughts on this, Michael? Well, I think that Sean Fain is onto something very important there. 
Uh, you know, the guy's an electrician from Kokomo, Indiana. Worked at, uh, as an electrician on an auto plant and then went up, got active in the union, and he's now president of the union. But the guy's a working-class electrician, and he understands something from that position that's very, very important, which is, as he says in another part of his remarks there, uh, that you didn't have time to play, you know, yeah, the executives and the corporate bigwigs and the chiefs, they have jobs to do. They, they do work. They do various things. The problem is that we do the work of making things. They make decisions fine, but we make the product. And so as the people who make the product, whether it's automobiles or whether it's the services of a call center or nurses at the, you know, in a hospital or orderlies or, or transportation, transport workers in the hospitals, those are the people who actually do the work. And that's the working class in this country. And that's the majority of the population. That's why the book I wrote in 2000 is called The Working Class Majority, because that's the overwhelming majority of people in this country. And when President Biden likes to talk about, well, the, the middle class made this country and unions made the middle class, that's just hides what's really going on. The unions made the working class have a better life. That's not middle class. That's the working class has a better life, which is very important in what unions do. And so I think if you talk about class in terms of power rather than income, the middle class is in the middle of some rich people and some poor people. Well, that isn't a very helpful way of understanding what the power relationships are in the country. And what Sean Fain was talking about was what are the power relations? Who's got the power? And while he's saying, you know, the corporate executives have the power to make decisions about what's going to happen, nothing happens with those decisions until workers actually make it happen. And that's where the power lies. And I think that it's very important for us to understand that distinction, that class is a question of power, it's not a question of income. And I guess you could put in, into that mix the question of status and the, I think, propensity for the media as a, almost like a wing of the corporate class to try to get militant class-conscious language out of the nomenclature and to have a, everybody feel like, oh, we're all big part, you know, you know, we're in the middle class and, and we're just a, one rung below the, the rich folks and we're going to get there because, you know, we're pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps, all that kind of stuff. Well, yeah, I do think the media, the, the mainstream corporate media uh, doesn't like to talk about class and class dynamics. They really don't. They accept to talk about the middle class. Uh, but they don't talk about the corporate class. They don't, you know, Bernie Sanders talks about the billionaire class, but it's very rare to talk about the capitalist class. And that's who these people are that are on the other side of the bargaining table, whether that's the UPS workers or the hospital workers out uh, dealing with Kaiser Permanente. Uh, 75,000 hospital workers may go out uh, on strike, uh, you know, imminently. Mm -hmm. And uh, those are the working class people who are confronting the power of the capitalist class. And that is the dynamic that we really need to focus on and what labor really is engaged with. This is a period of time when the organized labor, in spite of all this incredible 
upsurge and renaissance of militancy and organizing of the unorganized in this country. Organized labor in the private sector is somewhere around 6%. And it, I think at its peak, it was, am I mistaken, 39%, somewhere around there? Yeah, somewhere around 35%. It was a lot. But yeah. this, is, this is a very shriveled uh, labor movement. How did it become so diminished? Give us a, maybe a, a short version of the history of the decline of organized labor and this, I guess, victory of corporate media in league with corporations to diminish it, to change the language, and actually to defeat working people so profoundly. Well, that's you know a long story of uh, the yeah. last 70 or 80 years of American history. But uh, basically, uh, what we have is a situation where the uh, the labor movement in the 30s, with legislative help in the Wagner Act, made real progress and made real gains. The problem then became for capital, how do we turn those gains around? How do we restore our power and weaken theirs? And that process began right after World War II with the passage of the Taft-Hartley Act in 1947, uh, which in many ways restricted what was the uh, power and the basis of power, the organizational power, that the working class had and was exercising in order to carry forward their uh, agenda and their organizing successes. And since 1947, systematically, through legislation, through the Red Scare, the McCarthy period, and getting rid of the class-conscious and militant leaders in the labor movement, all of that has resulted in a, a diminution of power on the part of labor in regard to their confrontation with capital. There was a period after the passage of the Taft-Hartley Act where, where organized labor was still very strong, upright through the 60s. As you point out, I think you know, the Taft-Hartley Act was, I think, the linchpin in the long decline of organized labor. One of the things was a loyalty oath, which, as you said, it, it purged the organized uh, labor, AFL-CIO, of its militant leadership, the communists, the socialists, they had to sign a loyalty oath. If they didn't sign a loyalty oath, then I think they were expelled from the union. You could school me on this. But also, if they, if they lied and then were proven to be, you know, members of uh, previously members of the Communist Party or some other radical organization, they could be prosecuted under the Smith Act. So it was a, a sort of a hammer tongs situation. Tell us a little bit more about that and how that change in the nature, the complexion of the leadership led to this slow decline through the early days of the Cold War into the almost hot version of the Cold War, late 60s and into the 70s. Well, you had this uh, quote that uh, we just heard from Sean Fain, the class-conscious labor leader. As far as I know, not a communist, never has been, never will be, but he's a class-conscious, militant labor leader. So what happened in the uh, after Taft-Hartley, where in order to be a union official, you had to say and swear that you were not a communist, never have been a communist. And if you were a communist, then you couldn't be elected even to positions of authority. So the the, the class conscious and the class militants of the leadership of the 30s and 40s got pushed out of the mainstream labor movement. Meanwhile, 
because of Taft-Hartley, because of the Wagner Act, the way in which collective bargaining was undertaken was through contracts. And that meant that once you had a contract, the administration of that contract was up to lawyers, because that's who administers contracts, his lawyers. So what you had was a, a, a pushing out of the labor movement of the rank-and-file, class-conscious, militant organizers, and the rising up of authority and power of lawyers who were relying on the courts rather than the rank-and-file mobilization to uh, enforce the contracts, to mobilize for new contracts and uh, gains in collective bargaining. So it was like a one-two punch. And the result was a very substantial, over time, a very substantial weakening of the labor movement. And it really kind of culminated in a tipping point when Reagan was elected, Ronald Reagan in 1980. And one of the first things that he did when he was president in 1981 was to disband the uh, air traffic controllers who were on strike. And he just fired them all. They were public employees. And he fired 11,400 air traffic controllers and said, well, yeah, goodbye. It's illegal to strike, and uh, we're not giving you any amnesty. We're not recognizing any any legitimacy to your union or to your demands. You're fired. And that was a sign in the private sector that it was really open season for attacking uh, unions, and that's what we've had. Well, Michael, we've we've had a wild ride here tonight on this uh, second edition of the Monthly Labor Report. We're going to continue these reports every uh, first Tuesday of the month at about 8.45 p.m. Michael, thank you so much, and we'll certainly be looking forward to speaking with you again next month and probably at that time actually getting into the nitty-gritty about talking about your new book. Well, thank you very much, Richard. It's a pleasure to be with you and uh, with your listening audience. And let's see where we can take this in uh, months to come. Much more to talk about, Michael. And we'll do it then. Okay, take care. Bye-bye. Yeah, bye. That's Michael Zweig, author, activist, and professor emeritus at the State University of New York at Stony Brook. My name is Richard Hill. 